0: You're listening to audio from Park Church. More info and resources are online at parkchurch.org. Take care. Again, our scripture reading today is from Matthew 15, verses 1 through 20. Matthew 15, 1 through 20. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men." And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Adrian. Good morning. morning. Hope you're well. My name is Gary, one of the pastors here. Uh, If you noticed, we're beginning Matthew 15. It means we're done with Matthew 14. And there are 28 chapters in the book of Matthew, which means halfway. Good job, math majors. Halfway. Halfway. 14 done, 14 to go. Two years in. Uh, We got this. I'm not in a hurry. Are you in a hurry? No hurry. Uh, I love this gospel account. This passage in particular uh, is... Something that's been really significant for me, even this week, just considering where my heart is with Jesus. We often, as Christians, can kind of get into rote behaviors where we start just operating in certain ways, and we lose sight of where our heart is with Jesus, and Jesus is on a mission for our hearts, Uh, and he's on a mission for your heart today. He cares about your heart. He wants you to walk with him. He wants you to know his presence. He wants your heart to be soft to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He wants to change you from the inside out. And so I'm going to just give us a moment to pause in the presence of God because he's here with us. And just invite him to actually speak to our hearts, to bring transformation into the depth of who we are. We need God. We cannot make it on our own. We need the cross. We need the blood of our Savior to change us from the inside out. And so let's invite him to do that through the power of the Spirit this morning. Um, Jesus, we are uh, grateful uh, for your love to become human, to dwell among us, to show us the way of righteousness, the way of love, the way of character and conviction and compassion and kindness to show us a way of grace and a way of truth and to walk in obedience to the father so beautifully so perfectly Uh, thank you for showing us uh, what it looks like to be human Uh, we confess that we have all turned from that way and so we thank you not merely for showing us an example but for laying down your life on the cross for our sin for our rebellion, for our unrighteousness, our uncleanness, our impurity. Uh, We thank you uh, for your death on the cross, and we thank you for defeating death, rising again on the third day, showing us your power to transform, to restore, to reconcile, to repair what has been broken by human sin. And then we thank you for sending us your Holy Spirit. Uh, Spirit, would you right now today Uh, shine lights into the areas where we have not been following you, the areas where we've turned from you, not to condemn us, but would you lead us to Jesus, our merciful Savior? Would you remind us of his love? Would you kind of from within us give us a heart cry, Abba, Father, to look at the God of mercy, the God of grace, and then would you change us little by little uh, from the inside out to be more like Jesus, we pray in Christ's name, amen. In 2011, there was a journal or a post in Psychology Today that was called What Monkeys Can Teach Us About Human Behavior. And it shared a little story about some researchers who got five monkeys together in this big room. And in the room from the ceiling on a string, they put a banana and they put some stairs up towards that string. And eventually when one of the monkeys decided to uh, kind of go uh, get the banana, as soon as that monkey touched the stairs, they took a cold water and they sprayed the other monkeys, which isn't cool, right? Like I'm not like advocating for this as a good research technique. But they sprayed the other monkeys. And uh, and they kept doing this. Every time a monkey would stop getting on the stairs, they'd take out this hose and they'd spray the other monkeys. And before long, monkeys were like, hey, let's not do that anymore, you know? Um, and they would stop each other from trying to get on these stairs. And so after a while, uh, they took one of the monkeys, or they actually put away that cold hose, the monkeys didn't know this, and they took one of the monkeys out, and they put a new monkey into this cage with the others, and the monkey saw the banana, and was like, I like bananas, and uh, that's what I think the monkey would have thought, and then would get on the stair, and as soon as that monkey got on the stair, all the other monkeys attacked the one monkey, like, no, don't get on the stair, you know, like, don't, and so the monkey was potentially bewildered or whatever, but eventually, every time that monkey would try and get on the stairs, the other monkey would attack it, and that monkey who's never seen the hose, never experienced the water, was just like, not gonna do that anymore, and stopped. And after a while, they took out a second monkey and brought in a new monkey who had never been in there. That monkey saw the bananas, like I like bananas, got on the stairs, all the monkeys attacked this monkey again, to prevent it from going up to the stairs, because the fear was that when we get on the stairs, the rest gets sprayed. But now two of the monkeys have never seen that before. They're just doing it because it's the way that it's been done around them. And this happened one after another, before long, all five of the original monkeys are out, all five new monkeys are in, and even on the last one, the monkey gets on the stairs, all the monkeys who have never seen the water attack the other monkey, and keep the monkey from going up the stairs and the monkey doesn't. And so they sit there in this room with this banana and none of them have any, re- any idea why they do this. It's just the way it's always been done. And that's what the journal article is talking about, that we as human beings have a tendency to do things the way we've always done it, even when we don't know why we do it. We, we kind of absorb traditions and patterns and take those upon ourselves because they were handed down to us and at many times we lose the why. Now, a couple of things to note about the story. Number one, It's not true, that never happened. Uh, It was actually in the 2011 uh, journal, uh, kind of psychology today, but it was made up research, which for the record, isn't cool. Uh, (laughs) You're not supposed to do that uh, in different kind of magazines and journals. You're not supposed to do that. And so that author, you know, got some grief. Uh, He said it was based on some legitimate studies. Uh, Whatever the case may be, the story is still helpfully illustrating a point. Uh, and so, so it's not true. However, the reality is, as human beings, we do, we do very much kind of absorb the traditions from the generations that have come before us, from our family systems, the churches that we grow up in, our society at large. We absorb patterns of behavior because it's the way we do things. It's the way we go about things, and you absorb those and you carry them on. And often we do that without thinking about why we do it or the implications of what this might be doing to us or to society. Traditions played a really significant part in the kind of first-century Jewish culture that Jesus was operating in, that Jesus was kind of living in. They had a way of thinking about the scriptures, the Hebrew people in the first century, where they had the written word of God, but alongside the written word of God, they had something called the halakha, which is the kind of the Hebrew word is like walking. It's the way we walk. It's the way we live. This is sort of the way we do things. And the scripture and the halakha were both binding, In their society, they expected all of the Hebrew people to be obedient to not just the scriptural uh, commandments, but also the oral and written traditions passed on by the elders and the rabbis from the generations previous. And so they would be continually taking the kind of scriptural teachings and interpreting them in ways and then kind of coming up with other ways to help the people understand how do we apply this in these societies. But they would take those traditions and those additional commandments and they would kind of put them on the backs of the people with equal authority so that there was a pressure in the kind of Hebrew society to live according to not just the scripture but also the traditions of the rabbis and leaders who had gone before. And so that's the environment, the sort of kind of religious, sociological environment that Jesus is living in. And that's the environment that he is confronting really significantly because in the heart of those experiences, even when there were desires to bring traditions to bear for good reasons, the the fact of the matter was that the heart of God's wisdom and God's instruction for his people was getting lost along the way. And people were using those traditions no longer to help people follow the way of God, but they're using them to create systems where society could actually determine who's really in as the faithful people of God and who's out. Who are the people that are following the way of Jesus or following the way of Yahweh and following the instructions and who's not? Who's taking purity laws and sacrificial laws and all these cleanliness laws and dietary laws? Who's taking them seriously and who's not? And they use that system to really keep other people out. And in their minds, the way they would frame it is they're keeping kind of polluted, unclean people away from tarnishing the society, the Jewish society, in the hopes that because of their cleanness, because of their righteousness, God would finally send their Messiah to come and redeem them and deliver them. And their thought was, if we can get a clean society where people follow all the rules and follow all the commandments, then God will deliver us. Then God will send his Messiah and deliver us from Roman oppression that was the hope. So they took these laws seriously, which is why these Pharisees and scribes that come to Jesus in chapter 15 have a bone to pick with him. So look with me at Matthew chapter 15. We're just going to walk through the passage, and I'm just going to pull out some implications at the end. Chapter 15, verse 1. Then the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem Uh, The idea here is that Jerusalem is the religious capital uh, of Israel. It's also the political capital, the kind of cultural capital. And somehow that the ministry of Jesus in the north and around the Sea of Galilee, kind of news about Jesus was spreading, right? You hear the story of the feeding of the 5,000, which was more like some 15,000 people that were fed. More and more people are telling about his miracles, his power, his teaching. And, And these kind of stories are making their way to Jerusalem. And they're hearing that Jesus isn't an orthodox rabbi. He's not following the kind of way of the kind of establishment, the religious establishment. He's teaching things differently. He's operating around people in different ways. He's not following all the commandments. And so they're concerned about what this Jesus might be and what that might mean for their kind of religious community and might mean even for their systems of power. And so they get this constituency together and they send out a delegation to go investigate what's up with Jesus. Uh, Who is this guy? What is he doing? Why is he doing things differently? What do we think about him? And so they get this delegation. They send him up on this multi-day journey to do an investigation. And that's where we get in verse 2. These Pharisees and scribes come to Jesus and they said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat, which is kind of funny if you're reading it from our kind of modern vantage point. You're like, you sent a big group of religious leaders to ask Jesus why his disciples don't wash their hands before dinner. You know, like, that's like something your mom should teach you, you know, like, wash your hands before you eat. It's a good idea. It's a practice. Hygiene is healthy, good. This isn't primarily about germs, though. It's not primarily about germs. Hygiene is always good. Washing your hands before you eat is the right thing to do. Kids, do that. Um, (laughs) Then there's a pandemic. Now washing your hands before you eat is like next level, right? And so you've got hand sanitizer in your car door. You've got hand sanitizer at the house. You get the fruit home from the grocery store and you put a piece of tape in the middle and you sanitize this side. You know, remember at the beginning when we're all like, how do you keep things clean? And uh, all these kind of like cultural ideas about how do we keep things clean? Why? This was because of germs. It was because of virus. It was because of people trying to make sure that we're not transmitting kind of physical illness this was not the case in the first century. It wasn't about germs. It wasn't about viruses. But it was about a transfer of impurity. It was about a transfer of impurity. There were conceptions about Sacred space or about the place that God dwells in the kind of place that God would want to be in that made them take different rules and different teachings from the Old Testament very seriously about cleansing sacred space. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of kind of a background of what that is to bring you into their sort of mental conceptual world. So from the beginning of creation, the Hebrew people knew the story of God creating the heavens and the earth and creating this environment in the Garden of Eden where human beings could live in the presence of their God, their creator. But they also had a conception of deity as holy, holy, holy. And that means distinct, other, entirely pure, Someone in whose presence no impurity, no uncleanness, no sin, no pollution, no brokenness could come into the presence of the holy, holy, holy God, because if they would, it would be a danger to that person. And so in the Garden of Eden, humanity in a sinless state is allowed to be in the presence of God. But the moment human beings from the very beginning to every subsequent generation decided we're going to rebel against the reign of God, they're then exiled from his presence and are now entering and operating in a world where there is in eternal uncleanness within us because of our own sin, but we also operate in a world that's full of different things in the ancient Near East that would have been pollutants, things that would have made people impure, unclean, sometimes not even because of sin. So like kind of being around a dead body to prepare a dead body for burial, wasn't sinful, but it would bring you in proximity with an uncleanness, and to kind of cleanse yourself of that, you'd have to walk through different ritual washings and different atoning rituals to cleanse you so that you could be in the presence of God. So people could not go into the temple to worship without walking through different ritual cleansings and different kind of called purgation rituals or rituals for purifying people from the uncleanness that they had picked up through living in this world. And so there are laws as God begins to redeem humanity through the people of Israel in Exodus where he gives the Ten Commandments and gives all of these other laws through the book of Leviticus. He's teaching them that to be in his presence requires a kind of purity that needs cleansing, needs washing, needs sacrifice, needs atonement. You need to be purified to be able to come into the presence of God. And so for the people of Israel... As they're wandering through the wilderness and when they eventually make their home in the land of Israel, in the promised land, they would walk through these rituals to purify themselves and to cleanse themselves because they wanted God to dwell among them. Now fast forward in the story. Because of their sin and their rebellion, there's this image in Ezekiel where the, the, the glory of God leaves the temple. And God's presence leaves them because of their sin, their unrepentant sin, their brokenness and their idolatry, he leaves the temple. So even when the people of Israel come back eventually into the promised land, there's this desperation for God to visit them again. And the thought is, we need to get ourselves clean. We need to clean ourselves up. We need to make ourselves right so that God could dwell with us again. And so the kind of tradition of the rabbis and the teachers would kind of take all of these rituals about cleansing and think, we don't want to mess this up. So what does it mean to go through cleansing? How do we be extra safe to make sure we don't mess this up? And they started adding to the scriptures all these different extra laws, all these different extra commandments, these different extra teachings. And so they began to say, it's probably safe just to wash your hands and go through a cleansing ritual every time before you eat. Because you don't want to have touched or been around something unclean unintentionally, put your hands on some food, and then you eat this food and it makes you unclean. And so to make sure we're not messing this up and make sure we stay clean so that God will deliver us, let's make sure we wash our hands every time. Because then the Messiah will come. Let's, we got this. We can do this. Nobody messes this up. If any of you mess this up, we're toast. You understand? If any of you mess this up, God might not come back. That's a lot of pressure, isn't it? A little bit, a little bit of pressure. And so they hear about Jesus' disciples not following those rituals. And so they ask, why don't they do this? Jesus doesn't defend himself. He doesn't even answer their question. He's brilliant. And, uh, and he just turns this question right back on them. Listen to what he says, verse three. And he answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? They're saying, why don't you follow the traditions of the elders? And he says, why, don't, why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? You're like, what is he talking about? He explains, for God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father and mother must surely die. Jesus is going to refer to the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother and some of the consequences of breaking the first, fifth commandment in certain ways that are found in the book of Exodus. And so he says, you break the commandment to honor your father and mother when, here's who he says this, but you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. What's happening here? A little bit more background. Sorry, keep on those hats for just another minute. We're almost done with the mental stuff. Uh, And then you can turn off your minds and just passively absorb, you know. No, uh, so chat with me for one more minute. Essentially, they had these laws about, uh, there's the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, a piece of that that was accepted And that is accepted even in the New Testament as a piece of that is to take care of your parents even in their old age. And so they don't have 401ks, they don't have Roth IRAs, they didn't have retirement planning in that kind of way. The way that the elderly in their community were taken care of is through their children and through their grandchildren. Multi-generational housing, taking care of parents in different ways, taking care of them financially, physically, kind of providing for them even in their death and in their burial. It was a part of the not just the custom, but it was a way that the people of God were called to care for the elders in their community. Now, the priests and the rabbis and the scribes. Created a a new kind of policy, a new tradition, a new law where they said, yes, that's fine and good, but do you know what's more important than honoring your father and mother? That's good, you should. But what's more important is honoring God. So, if you make an oath to give God your possessions and give God your money and you dedicate those things to the Lord, and, and that means you can't give them to your parents, then it's okay. And what does that do? Well, it makes people that work in the temple get a little richer. It does, right? Like if you work in the temple and people that have this money that they're like, I'm gonna take care of my parents, they're like, or you can dedicate it for the use of the temple. You can make it available for our use in which case you don't have to give it to your parents which is a really distorted way of kind of finding some sort of loophole that they made up to give people reason to give more money to the temple system and to violate this commandment to honor their parents. And so Jesus is hearing these people like, why don't your disciples wash their hands? We're trying to be holy so that the Messiah will come back and your people are messing it up. And he's like, no, 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 no. Not going to play that game. You're acting as though that the kind of exercise of not washing our hands is this reason why the messiah is not going to come back but the reality is your own heart is so corrupt so broken so bent that you've taken the fifth commandment and you've voided it out for the sake of following these traditions that you made up not going to happen he doesn't play their game instead he just turns the kind of table right back at them and says you hypocrites you hypocrites. The hypocrite, the idea of a hypocrite is somebody who's a play actor. They, they're kind of, it's the word for an actor on a stage. And so, if you were to imagine, there's a human being who has a life and a personality and an experience, and then they're going to go kind of be an actor on stage and say, so Hop on stage. They got their mask on. They've got their costume on. They're playing a part. That part that they're playing is not the true them. It's not what's happening internally. It's not who they are. It's a fake version of themselves that they put on stage to put a display up for the sake of kind of getting the applause of others people and Jesus takes that concept and says that's what you're doing you've taken these religious things and you've kind of created for yourself a system of external behavior that makes you seem better than everybody else you've got it together you kind of like follow these rules. good you wash your hands before you eat good you give the money to the temple good you do this you follow all these rules externally you look great internally you are dead in other places he says you're like a whitewashed tomb Look good on the outside, on the inside, dead, dead. And so here's what he says. Look at the passage, chapter 15, verse seven. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He says, you, you talk the talk, you say the right things, you teach all these things, you memorize Torah, you memorize scripture, you teach scripture, good job. Your heart, though, is so far away from me. You, you go into the temple and you make the sacrifices and you do the washings and you do the cleansing and you walk through the motions and you do it all and you kind of can get a big applause from people like, whoa, look at the holy people, look at the priests, look at the scribes, look at the Pharisees, wow, I wish I was like them, and, and you do all of that? You do all of that and it's worthless. He says it's a vain. It's empty. It means nothing to God. External behavioral performance means nothing to God when your heart is far from him. When your heart is far from him. And he says, and then you promote as doctrine the commandments of human beings. You've made up some stuff and you're teaching it to people, these systems and these rules and these regulations that you made up, and not only is it not what my word said, but it's also undermining the very heart of my word and my passion for my people, and we're going to get to that in a second. That these traditions where you could give a way that the people of God could kind of modify their behavior to feel good about their righteousness— like because I follow this rule and because I follow this rule, because I go to church and because I go to gospel community and because I give and because I I did this thing with my neighbors and because I did this and because I did this, then I feel good about myself and surely God's happy with me and surely God loves me and surely God's gonna show me mercy and grace because of all that I've done externally, all that I've done on my outside, all that I've kind of, all the mask and all the costume and all the kind of facade I've put over, I feel good about myself externally because I've like done these things that I learned to do along the way. And the question that Jesus is after is, where is your heart? Where's your heart? You can say the right things. We can do the right things. We can kind of operate. We can take all these traditions and and kind of operate in the ways that good Christians are supposed to operate. And all of that, if our hearts are far from him, means nothing to Jesus. It means nothing to Jesus. Look at what he says here. says, and then he called all the people to himself. He's like, okay, teaching moment. Let me make it clear. And when Jesus makes it clear, it normally gets a little more confusing first, uh, just for the record. Uh, He says, And he called the people to him and said, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. He says, You can wash your hands before you eat, and you can make sure your hands are clean, and you've done the ritual cleansing, and you touch the food, and you eat that food, and you can feel like, Oh, Oh, Man, that's, that makes me clean. I've, I've eaten clean food. Or you can look at somebody else who didn't wash their hands before they eat. They didn't go through the cleansing and they ate food and you think, oh, they must be defiled and polluted and God will never rescue us and never deliver us because of the unholiness among us because of what they put into their mouth. He says, that's not what defiles anybody. What defiles us is what comes out of us from the inside. And that's what defiles us. We're gonna come back to that. He's gonna explain it. If you're like, I don't get it. You know, Peter didn't either, so it's okay. Um here's what he says. I love this. (laughs) Then the disciples came and they said to him, uh, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Which I just, I love that. It's like the Pharisees were going to be more than offended. Jesus is undermining their whole system. He just called them hypocrites in front of a big group of people. Like this is, but the, the disciples are a little nervous. Why? These are the religious elites, Right? These are the. They, these, this is a constituency from Jerusalem. They know that if this group. Has an unfavorable opinion about Jesus, this is bad news for the Jesus movement. This means ongoing opposition, it means difficulty. They've already experienced some pain and opposition from the people, the religious leaders around Galilee. To get kind of official sanctioned delegation from Jerusalem that now has an unfavorable opinion of Jesus is gonna make Jesus's ongoing ministry more laden with opposition, with persecution, with pushback. From the religious establishment. So they're feeling a lot of insecurity about this. And so they go to Jesus, like, hey, could you patch that up a little bit? Could you clarify to them? Could you go a little softer? Remember when you said, gentle, my heart is gentle and lowly? Like, that didn't feel gentle and lowly. It felt kind of harsh and really direct. And I love that about Jesus. He's full of compassion and conviction, he's full of grace and truth. He is gentle and lowly, but he is strong and direct. He is Lord God Almighty. He is this tender, humble, kind, gentle, meek, compassionate presence. As people come to him, there's a safety as people come in their brokenness. But when people get in the way of other people coming to him, he is direct. He is intense. He is full of truth, but also very comfortable offending people. And the people he most offends are the people that are getting in the way of people coming to him for mercy. When people in their brokenness, in their vulnerability, in their pain are wanting to draw near to Jesus and other people are getting in their way and obstructing that by putting on those people more burdens that they could never bear, Jesus gets really, really brutal. I think of one particular passage when children are coming up to Jesus and, and they're coming and everybody's like, no, keep the children away. And Jesus says, if anyone keeps one of these little children back for me, it will be better for them If a millstone was hung around their neck and they were thrown into the depth of the sea, when they experienced the full force of God's judgment, they will have wished they were never born. Jesus, gentle and lowly and Lord God Almighty, full of passion and truth, passionate about God's heart to bring mercy to us in our brokenness. And that's what I think is so stunning about this passage. Why is Jesus so intense? Because these traditions weren't merely kind of additional things. They were creating a system that made people think if they did a good enough job, God would finally deliver them, which is the opposite of what God's instructions in his word are designed for. God's instruction in his word is not like, hey, try harder, do more. His instructions light up the areas where we've fallen short, not so that we would try harder and strive more, not also so that we'd be condemned or feel less than, but so that we've come to him in desperate need for mercy in desperate need for grace, and desperate need for forgiveness, and desperate need for an undeserved love from our God and Father. And that's what Jesus gets to here. He says this, as he's even interacting with his disciples, as they're like, hey, you know, you've offended them. He says this, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. He said, I'm sowing kingdom seeds where people are coming to me and they're hearing the good news of my kingdom, the good news of my love. I'm inviting people, come to me. All you are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart. You're going to find rest for your soul. My yoke, my way of life is easy. The burden I give is light. Light. It's like he's inviting people. That's what he's planting as a way for people to come to him in their brokenness, in their sin, in their shame to experience forgiveness, cleansing, and healing, grace, mercy. He's planting a seed that's going to grow and change the world. Other people over here are planting a different kind of seed. Do more. Why didn't you wash your hands? Why didn't you come to that thing? Why didn't you learn that? Why'd you mess up here? Why? And his system that was crushing people. He says, that is not my way. That in time will get, that plant is going to get plucked out That will come in time. But look at what he says right here in the passage. And I think this is a a learning point for all of us. Let them alone. Let it go. He doesn't feel like he has to scramble and defend it. He doesn't feel like he has to like, oh no, they're messing everything up. He's like, hey, they they are blind guides and the blind are leading their blind and they're leading towards a pit. And Jesus is not anxiously trying to like, well, hold on, I just want, if you just understood what I really meant and I think you misunderstood. He's not chasing them down. He's letting people in their blindness go. He's saying they're they're gonna go and he's gonna focus on those who are coming to him for mercy and for grace and for healing and for transformation. He does not want his disciples to waste their energy chasing down people that are blindly opposing his kingdom. Just like I'm not gonna waste my energy. That will be sorted out. You saw this in the parables of Matthew 13. In the end, that will be sorted out. Let them alone. Let's focus here. So then he pulls together his closest disciples. Peter says to him, Will you explain this parable to us? And Jesus said, Are you still without understanding? It's like, Well, Jesus is sometimes confusing. I feel like in this, like you're like, There are times he says stuff and you're like, I don't totally understand. And Peter's like, I don't understand. You're like, Me neither. And Jesus' like, Do you still not get it? I think he's like, Sinlessly exasperated? I don't know what that would be. Is there a way to be sinlessly exasperated? Um, I would be sinfully exasperated, I'd be like, what the heck, guys? Like how long? Um, here's what he says. Do you not see he's gonna he's like, let me let me let me make it plain for you. He's gonna explain this idea of what goes into the body isn't what defiles you. It's what comes out of the mouth that defiles you. Let me make it plain. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? Little anatomy lesson, right? So just a quick understanding of basic human biology and digestive, you know, experiences. And he's like, he's like, I mean, the, the Greek is very crass. He's like, hey, you put it in your mouth, goes into your intestines, and then into the toilet. Like, that's just, that's what happens with food. That's not what makes you dirty, Mark will say in this passage alone, he's declaring all foods clean. He's saying, hey, the cleanliness laws, the dietary laws, they were a symbol of something. They were pointing people to the need to be purified and to be pure. But never, ever, ever were dietary restrictions or even rituals of hand-washing or cleansing designed to ultimately most truthfully and most wholly transform human beings from the inside out because nothing on the outside we do can change the core issue that is Within us. And so here's what he says But what comes out of the mouth mouth, proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile anyone. He's like, okay, you didn't wash your hands, no big deal. You know what is a big deal though? Your heart. And your heart's nasty. It's like not sweet Jesus. You're like, okay, it's not a big deal. He's fine. He's cool. (laughs) He's cool with us doing it this way. And it's like, sin's no big deal, right? Jesus isn't gonna take cleanliness like that seriously, apparently. He's not taking the law seriously. He doesn't care that much about purity. He doesn't care that much about the holiness code. He doesn't care that much. No, 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 no. He cares so much. He just says external behavioral modification does not transform the brokenness within you. Every... One of us in this room, it's hard news from Jesus, are defiled from the inside. There's a brokenness, the Bible calls it sin. There's a brokenness to the human heart. There's a bentness and a corruption within us that flows out of us in all of these different ways. It flows out through slander and bitterness and hatred and envy, and arrogance, and self-righteousness, and sexual immorality, and all kinds of different behavioral patterns that themselves aren't the fundamental issue. You can fix the behavior, but underneath that behavior is a heart that needs transformed. The way the Old Testament will talk about it is, you need a, like a brand new heart, a brand new heart. And nothing we do about washing our hands or going to church on Sundays or going to a small group or reading your Bible or saying certain prayers or giving to the church or doing something kind to your neighbors, nothing you can do behaviorally can ultimately resolve the fundamental issue within us. We need mercy, we need grace. We need forgiveness. We need deliverance from within us. And what's beautiful about this passage, Jesus doesn't even finally resolve it. He's highlighting that the whole thrust of scripture is not do more, try harder. The whole thrust of scripture is to bring us to our knees and say, God, have mercy. I turned from you. I ran away from you. I cannot make it on my own. I cannot heal myself. I cannot change myself. I cannot rid myself of this broken heart. I need a savior. And that's exactly who Jesus had come to be. He came to be the savior that we all need. He is in this moment diagnosing the core human problem, the core problem, which is a problem at a heart level. The image is like a a tree where you have a root system, and from an unhealthy root system comes unhealthy fruit. If you look at a tree and you see unhealthy fruit, You can get mad at the fruit. You can try to staple on healthy fruit. Let's go buy fresh apples and staple on those fresh apples. And then the fruit will look better. It doesn't. It'll just rot. It doesn't last because it's not coming from a transformed root system. If you want to experience the fruit of God's spirit, things like love, and joy and peace and patience. If you wanna experience goodness and live with faithfulness and kindness and gentleness and self-control, you cannot generate that from within you. You need a kind of overhaul on the root system. You need your heart to be changed. How does that happen? It doesn't happen by trying harder. Doesn't happen by striving more. It happens by humbly coming before God, admitting your brokenness, admitting your need, Owning your sin and turning to Jesus who laid down his life for you. I want to read uh, just a couple passages to close that, where Jesus uh, communicates this so, so clearly. One of them is in Luke chapter 18 and he tells a parable uh, to a bunch of people that felt like because of all the things that they had been doing behaviorally that they were good before God and they felt better than and looked at other people with contempt. They felt better than other people because of their behavior. And so he says this, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One of them was a Pharisee, a religious leader, cream of the crop, and the other was a tax collector, somebody who had compromised with Rome in ways that brought oppression on the people of God, the one of the most kind of notably broken people in society. And this is what Jesus says. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I'm not an extortioner or unjust or an adulterer. Not even like this tax collector. Bet you're glad to have me on your team. I bet I'm the kind of person that if all of Israel is like me, you'd finally come and dwell among us. If all of Israel was like me, you'd finally come and deliver us from the Roman Empire. Unfortunately, these lowly, sinful tax collectors over here are kind of undermining this whole thing. And then it says this. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He says, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What Jesus is saying is so profound. What he's looking for is not people like, look, I did all the right things and I've got it all together. What he's looking for is an honesty about our brokenness, that we would beat our chest and say, God, I need mercy I'm a sinner. And when this person comes honest about his sin, honest about his brokenness, Jesus is like, I love that. My heart just leaps to that, to that humility, to that honesty, to that need and that cry for mercy. My heart leaps to that, and Jesus declares over him, not guilty, righteous, clean. You go home accepted in the presence of God. Because he had it all together? No, because he came with humility and honesty about his core brokenness. He was honest about the shadow and the darkness and the sin within himself, and God leaps into that space with transforming grace and love and when the other person is kind of feeling the need to kind of stack up his accolades and his righteousness and feel good about himself he's like nope not what I'm looking for not what I'm looking for what he's looking for in human beings is honesty who are you really take the mask off take off the costume get down where is your heart where is it the reality is all of us have darkness within us. I stand on stage as a pastor and I can say things and do things and, and you can be like, oh man, like whatever, we're here and you sit there and you get your clothes on and you come to church and you go to your gospel community and it's like, who are we on the inside? Who are we on the inside? Is there arrogance in me? For sure. Insecurities? A ton. A ton of insecurity in me. Shame that nags at me. Guilt and frustration. Mixed motives. Mixed motives. Fear. There's there's darkness in me and in you. Welcome. Welcome. Glad you're here. So, this is what we do. We come to Jesus together. Say, God, have mercy on us. We're not better than another church or better than our neighbors or better than anybody else in the city. We just start saying, we're honest. Here we are broken and we need a Savior. We need mercy, we need grace. And if we could become a community that's learning to be honest with God about that, honest with ourselves about that, honest with other people about that, the power of God's grace at play when people get honest about walking in the light and honest about what's happening within them, the brokenness, the pain, the shame, the sin, the guilt, the fears, the insecurities. When we get honest, God's grace floods into that space with cleansing, with love, with power, and with transforming kindness. This is what John the Apostle said in 1 John. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Walking in the light is not about doing everything rightly. It's not about doing everything perfectly. Walking in the light is being honest about the reality of our sin. That's what walking in the light is, taking the inside stuff and bringing it out into light and saying, this is the real me. It's confessing. The word confessing is just being honest about what's real. This is what's real about me. If we confess our sin, John says, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Do you need to wash your hands before you eat? Yes, that's just generally a good idea. You should do that. Do you need to conform your life to some system to get God to love you and accept you? No. You just get really honest about who you are, the good and the bad, and bring that to bear and say, God, have mercy on me. And it says he is faithful and he is just to forgive us and to cleanse us. And when we begin to experience that kind of love. That sacrificial love which was purchased through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. When he suffered on the cross, he took upon himself our sin, our unrighteousness, our uncleanness, our kind of impurity. He took it all upon himself and he was crucified outside the city. He was separated from the presence of his father, bearing the full weight of God's wrath against human brokenness and sin on our behalf so that people like you and me that come before him with brokenness don't have to kind of cleanse ourselves up and mount up our kind of kind of our stack of righteous deeds and all that we've done, we can come and say, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I'm foul. I to thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior. Wash me or I die. And he says, forgiven, mercy, love, grace, grace. Kindness, steadfast faithfulness for you. And it's that kind of love, as that love meets you in the reality of your brokenness, that love changes us from the inside out. That's the kind of love that will transform the human heart. He gives us a whole new heart, and He begins through His Spirit to change us to be the kind of people that would reflect that love to other people, that would show that gentleness. In our relationships that would show kindness and show forgiveness and show grace and show mercy and live with a faithfulness to people that kind of change happens from the inside out not by trying harder but counterintuitively by getting really honest about the areas where we fall short and coming to God for mercy, grace, and healing. This is the gospel. It's what it all is. It's the journey that we're on together as a people. It is little by little over time, but there's a constant temptation for us to go back into these systems that we just feel the need to perform and to stack on kind of all these external things, and that will perpetually undermine the work that God wants to do among us. If, on the other hand, we get really honest, if we get really honest We start experiencing God's transforming grace in our community in more and more ways, which so many of you have experienced. I think we'll see God do beautiful things in us and through us for his kingdom. Let's pray together. Jesus, we need you now. Uh, We need your Holy Spirit to shine light into the areas of our lives uh, where you want to bring forgiveness and grace and healing. And so we pray for that even now your spirit would work among us in really beautiful and powerful ways. We pray in Christ's name, amen.
0: Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.